Please turn with me now in our New Testament reading, our sermon text in Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 20. Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built, But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night there will be two men and one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. So they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? So he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are always in the greatest of need of you opening our our blind eyes, opening our very hard hearts to receive your word. Even when it is utterly plain to us, Lord, we need your help. But all the more so when these things have to do with prophecy, with that which is yet to come, with the end times, Lord, how we pray that you would Enable us to understand truly how these things apply to us now, how these things are of pressing concern right now. We do pray, Lord, your blessing upon your own word and the preaching and hearing of it. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we're in this final portion of Luke, particularly considering verses 30 to 33, just those three verses, really. And we've already dealt with some of this. We're, we're really overlapping to some extent with the last sermon. We were in this portion, and we, we dealt with this, the, this, this larger text. But the difference is in focus, because last time we dealt with the idea that judgment comes suddenly. That's very important for us to understand. And the focus is certainly on those who are unbelievers. Judgment is coming, and you must flee the wrath to come. That's, that's the idea, and that is the application. Flee the wrath to come. 
But today we're moving on to a, a different focus, and I think the focus more of these verses has to do with those who've already decided to flee the wrath to come, who've already made that decision, and now the warning is don't turn back. That's the aspect of this that we're focusing on, this warning of Jesus, let him not turn back. Having decided to flee, please don't begin now to have second thoughts and to consider maybe this, this world as opposed to the world to come. Now, it is certainly, this section is certainly about worldliness, and we'll, we'll speak a little bit more about that. But I want us to understand that worldliness is not just a problem for obviously worldly people. It is a problem for everyone. And particularly in the, the larger sense of what Jesus is speaking of here, the problem of being brought away to something else, and trying to save your life, that is absolutely a problem for everyone. Lot's, the, the example of Lot's wife, which we'll consider, is not just merely about worldliness. It is more broadly about the attempt to save or to rescue one's own life, to make your own rescue operation, to have your own plan that is somehow different or apart from the, the one that God has given us in Christ. And that is true at the outset. If you, are, if you are trying to rescue yourself at the outset, you're going to fail. You can't do it. But if at any point along the way you say, well, you know, I think I, maybe I couldn't do it at the beginning, but now I can. Now I can save myself. Maybe now I can do something apart from God's rescue operation for me. The result will be absolutely the same. That you will absolutely fail. And you will not be saved. You will be as with Lot's wife. And that's why we should remember her. That's why we should to, to consider what brought her to that situation and to stay far, far, far away from it. And so the title this morning, especially those of you who have these little outlines, is Do Not Turn Back. Don't Turn Back. I have these three points. The command, the example, and the principle. Right? The command, the example, and the principle. First of all, the command is don't turn back. It's so simple. Verse 30, even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his, his goods are on the house, let him not come down to take them away. And otherwise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. We say, wow, is it really that important? Is it really that urgent that we can't even turn back to get our our stuff? The answer is absolutely it's that urgent. Absolutely. What about the things that I've left behind? No. It's time to flee the wrath of God. Now, why is that? Well, think about an airline safety brief. What do they tell you in this? In the event of an emergency, in the event of an evacuation, do not attempt to stop and pick up your luggage. Just get out. And that's because this is, this is one of those things um, that experience has shown us. Many In the, in the scenarios in which you're going to have to evacuate an aircraft, what has happened? It's crashed, right? Either on the land or on the water. And two things are, are happening. The whole thing is full with jet fuel and lots of sources of combustion. What is going to happen? A fire. You crash, there is going to be a fire, and you have seconds to get out of there. Or you crash in the water. 
well, not a fire this time. You have seconds to escape that, that fuselage before it goes to the bottom, right? What do you think is going to happen if you then stop to look and find your stuff? Or imagine, now sometimes it's hard enough to bring your carry-on just getting on board in an orderly way. How, what chance does, do people have if everybody's trying to get their stuff off? No chance at all. So whether by one mechanism or the other, there is no chance. You have the one chance to escape, and that is to flee for your life, taking nothing with you. That's it. And Christ says that the day of the Lord is just like that. Every bit is serious. Every bit is impossible to seek to preserve anything that is part of the problem, you see. That, that, your, your carry-on is now part of, of a of wreck. It is part of the wreckage. It is part of what is now going to keep you from surviving. And you've got to flee from it, just like you have to flee from the airplane itself. You used to trust in the airplane to get you where you needed to go. And now it's wreckage. And you've got to forsake it and get out of there before it becomes your destruction. And so it is with this world and the things of it and the religions of it and everything that is false in it. Maybe one time you, you put your trust in it, that it was going to take you where it was going to, going to go. And, but now you see that at any moment it will be destroyed completely. And it and the things of it and the philosophies of it and the charms of it, the things, the stuff, these things are what is going to pull you down to hell and you've got to forsake it and step away from it. Don't turn back. That's the command. It's so simple. Do not turn back. But secondly, there's an example that we need to learn from, and that is Lot's wife. Verse 32. One of the shorter uh, verses of the whole Bible, we know that the, the shortest is in John where it says, Jesus wept. This is very close to that. Remember Lot's wife. Well, to understand this further, we need to do exactly what the Lord told us to and to let's remember Lot's wife. Those of you who don't know about Lot's wife, let's talk about it. Let's go back to Genesis 19, chapter 19, starting in verse 15, and read about Lot's wife. We've, we've, we've had it in our, our reading, and now I'm going to direct your attention to a couple of aspects of what's happened here. First of all, in verse 15, when the morning dawned, the angels who were there to get them out urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but if two angels came to my house and the events had happened as were already described, and the warnings were coming as it were, I would think the reasonable thing is to leave right then. But you know what the funny thing was? It didn't happen that way in real life. Lot himself was lingering. While he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hand of his two daughters. There is always going to be in, the, in the, the, the actual reality of this world, because we are so used to it, so used to the things of this world, it will not be a natural thing for us to utterly flee it. And we're going, there's going to be a temptation to linger. But listen to this story of the Lord's mercy. The men, that is the angels, they took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. They brought him out and set him outside. It's such a wonderful picture of the salvation of God. They hadn't figured this out. They they hadn't been watching the stars and thinking, any moment now I think that the Lord's going to destroy this place. And and they themselves 
got them out? No. They came, they were warned, and at the end of it, they were grabbed, their hands were grabbed a hold of, and they were taken out of that city. What a beautiful picture of the mercy and grace of God. And so the, the warnings keep coming. Verse 17, so it came to pass when they brought them outside, they're almost done, they're almost out, that he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you nor stay anywhere on the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Even then, even then Lot, in his weakness, says, I, I can't, we can't make it to the mountains. What if we trip and we fall? What if we grow faint? That's a long way away, and then we'll be destroyed. Please, how about this one little city? <laughs> what do you know? The Lord, this one little town, this place that was going to be marked for destruction, he said, okay. I will destroy everything around this plain except for that one little place just for your sake. The Lord being merciful. Now they had less distance to go. Before they had to make it from here all the way to the mountains. Now they only have to make it from Sodom maybe to halfway to this, this little city that was there. And even that's not enough. Because hurry, escape there for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. The name of the city was Zoar. In verse 24, the Lord rained brimstone and fire in Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. Verse 26, but his wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. We have to learn from this. God's intention is that we learn from this. And we should consider, first of all, the, the sin that she committed. What was so horrible about her turning behind her? What was so terrible about that, that she would become a, a pillar of salt for it? Well, actually, Matthew Henry considered this as well. He said, it seemed a small thing, okay? It seemed a small thing, but we are sure by the punishment of it that it was a great sin and an exceedingly sinful thing. And we we see that. We have a just God. We see what happened to her. And therefore, we must infer that this was a great sin. First of all, she disobeyed a command. Right? She was told, escape for your life. Do not look behind you. It's very clear. Do not look behind you. It would be one thing of escape for your life. And the angels had forgotten to say, and don't look behind you. But they very specifically commanded, in the name of God, don't look behind you. And what then was behind, then, her not receiving the word of God? Well, as always, it's unbelief. Unbelief was behind it all, underneath it. And no doubt, beyond that, she looked back upon her neighbors. This is the words of, of Henry, whom she left behind with more concern than was, was fit Now that their day of grace was over and divine justice was glorifying itself in their ruin. Fourth, probably she hankered after her house and her goods in Sodom and was loath to leave them. And Christ intimates this to be her sin here in Matthew 17. She too much regarded her stuff. Do not go back to get your stuff. Now, and then fifthly, Her looking back evinced an inclination to go back. And therefore, our Savior uses it as a warning against apostasy. So it doesn't seem like much. It's simply a glance. But what's behind it? It's a heart of rebellion who's rebelled against a a command of God. It's a heart of unbelief that didn't believe when she was told that she would be destroyed if she did that. 
It's, it's a, a wrong estimation. In the days in which her neighbors could have been saved, she, she should have been out there trying to, to, to bring them to faith, to bring them with them. But now that day is over, now she has concern for them. It's perverse to God's, uh, to, to God's way. And, of course, she was hankering after the things of this world. And all this, it's no small thing. It's just a look that betrays a whole mountain, actually, of sin and rebellion. Now, I want us to think, by the way, that not just of, of her, but also of the Israelites and their desire to return to Egypt. It's the same thing. They had, they had left. God had brought them out. You remember the great story of the Exodus. They'll, they're being brought out of Egypt, and they're going through the Red Sea, and all the army of the Egyptians is destroyed before the, behind them, and now they're safe. And they're on their way to the promised land, just a little bit way to go. What happens? In their hearts, they decide, they, they desire to go back to Egypt. And they make the golden calf, and many of them are destroyed for it. Now, let me also say with regard to Lot's wife, not just the, the sin of it, but also of the punishment of it. Here in our, our second point of the great example of Lot's wife is that she was killed instantaneously. She was struck dead by the Lord. That's not the only time that's happened. It's happened on other occasions. And we say, behold the severity of God. He who had been so merciful to this whole family in any vague connection, Lot himself Lot himself, his connection was because he, was, he had been with Abraham. He was, therefore, had this connection by being a, a nephew of Abraham, part, sort of part of the covenant people. That's why the Lord was showing mercy. He remembered Abraham. That's why he was saved in the first place. Lot's wife, even more, his, her, her connection was even more tenuous. By some vague connection to the, the covenant promises, God is showing great mercy upon them. Then, after all that mercy has been showed, she turns away in her heart. And she's turned into a pillar of salt. Why? Why a pillar of salt? Why not just, she's struck dead and nothing else happens? The answer is because it might serve as a warning. All throughout Scripture, there are these stones being built up. You know, the, the idea of the Ebenezer, right? And not just the name of Ebenezer Scrooge. The name has come from the, this pile of rocks that is built up that remains forever a testimony, a witness. That we might look at it. Whenever people go past, they might take notice of these things. And so she was built as a, a pillar of salt. Something that's not subject to decay but something that is preserved for the purpose of being a warning to travelers. Pilgrim's Progress, if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you know that, that Bunyan makes use of this. As these travelers are walking away and they had just been tempted by someone to turn aside from the gospel, turn aside from, from their faith in Christ to the things of this world. And then they come by and they see this pillar of salt and it has a warning. Remember Lot's wife. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember Lot's wife, that we not turn aside. Philippians 3 says this, Not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I might lay a hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid a hold of me. Laying a hold, just like the angels did, laid a hold. 
Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, forgetting them, and reaching forward to those things that are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize and upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If Lot's wife had had that mind of forgetting the things behind and pressing on to the things before her, she would not have turned back. She would not have. And all this is what Jesus says in Luke. We, not so long ago, we were in Luke chapter 9, and he said this. Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. It's our example not to look back. Well, there's a command. Don't, don't turn back. There's the example of someone who did. And thirdly, there's a principle behind all this in verse 33, that whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I would make it just a little bit more clear or a little bit more literal in saying, whoever seeks to preserve his life will destroy it, right? So an attempt of preserving is actually destroying it, and whoever destroys his life will actually preserve it alive. That's what happens with those who turn to Christ in faith. Now, that's true in the first instance. That's true the first time we come to Christ in the very first place. We, we know the world is going to be destroyed, so there's no help there. We ourselves, we can't save ourselves. We are the problem. We are the ones, our own sinful hearts are the ones who have brought to, bear, to, to make us sinners before a holy God. That's our problem. We stand before God as those who are eminently qualified only for judgment. And so we can't get help from the world. We can't get help from ourselves. The only thing to do is to cling to Christ in faith. That's the nature of the problem. Now, that's true in the very first instance, and it's true in, the ter- in, in every step after that. And what we're saying here is apostasy, right? If you think that you maybe have begun this journey by faith in the Spirit, and now you begin to think that I can take it from here, that I am now good enough that I can carry on this Christian life on my own, that is called apostasy. And they have deci- this is the Lord's warning against this thing. All right? The idea of whoever is trying to preserve his life, the life that he has, he's going to destroy it. And that is as true at every point in the Christian life as it ever was in the beginning. Now, keep in mind, again, Lot's wife, she was outwardly part of God's people, right? She was of the group of God's people. She had God's mercy. She had this goodness. She had been warned. She had been commanded. And she had been moved along by the angels. And if anyone had taken a picture as they were leaving that place, leading, leading that wicked city, then people would say, I see some gods, a, a group of God's people, they have departed the world, and they're on their way to salvation. There they all, they're together as a group. And she had almost escaped. She didn't even have to make it to the mountain. She just had to make it to Zoar. But before that happened, she turned back. She was like the Israelites, again, who had been rescued from Egypt and almost come to the promised land. That's what Stephen says in Acts chapter 7. This is he 
Christ, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And what? In their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. Make us gods to go before us. That the solution is in the world, the solution is in ourselves, and we've gone this far from God himself, but now we're turning to other things. In our hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They were in the very way of escape, but in their hearts, they turned back. This is the same warning that's in Galatians. Galatians 3, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish that having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? That's the foolishness of the Galatians. They started out in the spirit. They started out understanding that they cannot save themselves and receiving the mercy of God in Christ. But then at some point they start to think, actually, now we can do it on our own and we can turn back to those things of the flesh and of the world. Well, we must listen to Jesus' warning rather than to such false examples. Do not turn back. And I have just two applications of this great doctrine. And the first is don't underestimate the world. Okay? Don't underestimate the, the power and the appeal of this world. Because what keeps sinners in the first place, sinners who hear the gospel, what keeps them away from Christ? Answer, the world. Those who hear the gospel and say, I'm tempted maybe, but, you know, I don't think it's worth it. I don't think it's worth having to change my life just for this religion. The world keeps many, many a sinner straight in the way of hell and will lead them to that way forever. Jesus says in Luke 16, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's as simple as that. And, and Jesus knows that when we're of two minds, this way and that way, one of the two things is going to win. And too often it's the world. What keeps sinners from, from, from the Lord? It's the world. What draws professing Christians away? Again, the answer is the world. That's the parable of the sower, of the seeds and the different seeds. This seed and that seed and the other seed, only one of those kinds of seed actually makes it to the end, actually is, is are, are of genuine Christians who are fruitful, but one of those categories is those who have received the thorns. That received the, uh, he who receives seed among the thorns is he who her, hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. You see the world choking the word of God and keeping those Christians from being fruitful. It draws them away. What hinders saints, what hinders believers in our walk in this world? It is the world. Now, what we should do is, I'm saying, don't underestimate the power and appeal of this world. 
Some of you might immediately say, I know I struggle with worldliness, and therefore I know exactly what you mean. Well, if anything, you're, you're not the ones that I'm worried about. I'm worried about the ones who, who, who don't consider that the world is of much attraction to them, because it always is. It always is. And that attraction comes to get us at sometimes the worst moments. We must be on our guard of all the subtle ways that the world has hold of our hearts. Yes, our minds, our bodies, but particularly our hearts. And we should distance ourselves and our affections from the world. You know, that's, that's just it. We have to have some relationship with this world. We can't all just go to a monastery. That was the problem with the, the Roman Catholics. The really religious and, and devout people all joined monasteries and nunneries. We don't want that. We have to have a relationship, but let it be a, a, a sort of distant and cool relationship. Not, not one that excites your affections and your, your heart, but a bit of a distance, and a distance that grows. You know, there's that hymn, the things of this world will go strangely dim, and that's really true. As God and his goodness brings us to greater maturity, sometimes it involves trials that breaks up our, our affection and love for the things of this world. But that ought to be our, our journeys. Is In fact, as we go, that our affection for the things of this world grow strangely dim. The second and final one is to stay the course. My urgent plea for all of you is that you stay the course if you are in Christ. Look, if you're not in Christ, that was, that was last time's sermon. And I'll say it again, though. Flee the wrath to come. It is serious. It is going to happen whether by your own death soon enough or by the return of Christ soon enough, flee the wrath to come. You are a sinner under the judgment of God. Flee to Christ in faith. That's all it takes, by the way. It's it's every bit as simple, even more so, I would say, than the situation of Lot and his family in Sodom. There they actually did have to physically make it to Zoar. For us, the moment that we put our faith in Christ, we are saved. That's the beauty of it. But for all of us, and I would say, stay the course. You know, there is, there's got to be a balance in our minds of what we think about the possibility of apostasy, of falling away from Christ. Because we shouldn't, be, uh, we shouldn't have some servile fear as if the gospel is not enough. Of course it's enough. That's exactly the point. The gospel is enough. But nor should it be a situation of presumption where we just, the very thought of praying for our preservation in, in Christ until the end doesn't even cross our mind. I think it crossed Paul's mind. Again, that's what he says in Philippians 3. Not that I've already attained or that I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. I do not count myself to have apprehended But the one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press forward. And that must be our attitude as well. Not presumption, but pressing on. Stay the course. Stay the course. It's like what is said in Hebrews. The whole book of Hebrews has to do with people turning away from the Lord or being tempted to do that. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence which has great reward. You have need of endurance, 
so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry, and the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. See that? Anyone draws back? But, verse 39, we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. And so I, just like the apostle writing the, the book of Hebrews, although I have every confidence in these people before me, I, I say don't draw back. Carry on. Stay the course. Christ is enough. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Christ is truly enough for us. We know, Heavenly Father, that this world is itself the problem. It's the thing that we need to be saved from. It's the thing that is brought uh, upon uh, this destruction is coming. And our own wicked hearts, as we are in ourselves, it's no salvation. Again, it is the source of our problem before God. And Heavenly Father, we pray that our hearts would not draw back to Egypt, would not draw back to Sodom, would not draw back to this world, but rather, Lord, that we would forget the things that are behind us and press on to the, the upward call, the upward mark, the thing that is before us in Christ Jesus, that we would be clinging to him in faith from the moment that we begin to the very moment of the end, Lord, and that at no point... We turn back to the false things of self-confidence, the things of the flesh, the things of works, or the things of this world. Heavenly Father, how we pray that you would indeed preserve us and that none of us would look back, that we would learn truly from Lot's wife, and that you would see us safely to the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.